Thank you, Andrew, for your prayer. Good morning, everyone. It's a blessing to be with you here this morning. And I pray it will be a blessing to share with what the Holy Spirit has placed onto my heart. For the people here at Monty that are physically here, and I pray it will also be a blessing for those of you who are listening through podcast and watching through the live stream. This year will be the third year that we've been focusing on our strategic priorities, which are the words stuck onto the very doors of this building. Bless, belong, believe and become. This year we're focusing on become, which is that everyone in Montmorency Community Church will become more Christ-like, exercising their God-given gifts to bless and serve others and to grow the kingdom of God. And as Andrew shared this morning, we're continuing on with our One Peter series, and this will be the sixth lesson this morning. We will be drawing from that priority and focusing on how to become more Christ-like. But before we start, I'd like to give you some background on the book that we're studying this morning. One Peter is written by Peter, who was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He wrote this letter to a group of Christians who were at one time in Israel and had become followers of Christ. But the persecution against them had become so great that they left Israel and went to a safe haven in Asia Minor, which is now known as modern-day Turkey. Peter, who understands a lot about suffering and persecution, writes to them to not just encourage them, but additionally to help them in a hostile culture where they're hostile towards things of Jesus. And he wants to encourage them in how to live for him in such a way that makes an impact. And Peter wants to address the subject of what do you do in the midst of that culture when you're wanting to do things that God tells you to do and that they're good things to do, but things go against you. How do you handle that? And how should you live in that kind of way? First, Peter focuses on the importance of believers bearing up under unjust suffering, yet continuing to live well this way. It might be called the Job of the New Testament, providing encouragement for the true believer to continue on in the way that Jesus has laid out for all of his followers. The endurance Peter called these believers is similar to Job's, a man who suffered despite his righteousness. Peter maintained that this was the kind of true perseverance that God expects from his people. Uh, I'm in a small group where we've got young dads. Um, we, we've recently had a mentor join that can help offer some guidance for us as young men. But we're all in a similar life stage with kids, uh, careers, and also just friends. And we've recently just finished a study on the book of Job. And it's been really interesting that during the preparation of the sermon, while praying and seeking the Lord's will, it's been an exciting and challenging way and to see the comparisons between both books. Cormac, on respectfully disagreeing both in the workplace and as citizens. And we've heard also from Andrew Lee last week about respect and submission. And this morning the topic is on always being prepared to have an answer for the hope that we have. Suffering. It's never a nice word to hear and even less to actually experience. It can come in many different forms 
mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. I'm sure we've all suffered more than once in our lives, and to different degrees, both within the individual experiences and as a whole. To what extent you have suffered, I'm not sure, and I'll not make any assumptions. I will not say that I understand what you've gone through, that I understand the reason behind your suffering, because I do not, just as you may not know mine. But I wonder if you've ever suffered for doing right. Suffered for doing right. Staying faithful to Christ can be really tough when life gets difficult. Sometimes life throws us a curveball and we can't really make sense of our Christian faith in the light of what has happened to us. And sometimes other people may give us a really hard time for being a Christian. Friends, family, work colleagues, our employers might make, not make it easy for us. And then temptation is to either remain quiet about our faith or to give up on it altogether. The idea that people have a right to a secure, healthy life is an attitude that has unfortunately bled over to the church. The extreme example of this is prosperity teaching, or what we now call the prosperity gospel, which communicates that God wants Christians to be wealthy, healthy and happy all the time. Even among more biblically orthodox Christians, however, there is an unspoken idea that God somehow promises to protect us from suffering. The result is an absence from teaching on the presence and role of suffering in the Christian life and the crises of faith that can accompany that suffering. The Bible regards suffering as normal. Part of the suffering comes from the fact that we live in a fallen world and this kind of suffering falls on Christians and non-Christians alike. Because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God, the physical world itself was subject to corruption and decay. As a result, things like disease and natural disasters happen to everyone. Certainly modern science and technology have developed to the point that we can shield ourselves from some of the consequences of this corruption and decay. However, we cannot eliminate them entirely. Hurricanes, tornadoes and earthquakes occur all over the world without discriminating between Christians and non-Christians. And we are completely powerless to stop them. We can now cure or prevent many diseases, but that doesn't stop Christians and non-Christians from developing cancer, or having heart attacks. The sinfulness of men and women adds human violence and oppression to this dark picture so that crime, war and oppression are also part of life everywhere on earth. Eventually all of us die, sometimes slowly and painfully, as a result of the rebellion of our first parents. It is true that God, in his incredible mercy, Mercy undoubtedly does not uh, does protect us from many of these consequences of our fall in our world. He does not ever promise in his world that he will protect us from physical injury or illness, and he allows all of us to die. This kind of suffering is a normal part of normal life in a fallen world. For followers of Jesus, however, the picture is even more sobering. 
the Bible actually promises us persecution and suffering for our faith. The world is in rebellion against God. It hates God, and when he came as a man in the person of Jesus Christ, the world responded by murdering him. Jesus promised us that the world would treat us the same way that it treated him. The first followers of Jesus consistently experienced suffering for the sake of Jesus. In Jerusalem, Galatia, Philippi, Thessalonica and Asia Minor, alongside the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews. Paul went through horrible suffering, as did the other apostles. Paul was quite explicit in saying that this was to be expected by everyone who follows Jesus. In the Bible, suffering and opposition are a normal part of the normal Christian life. The comfortable experience of Christians in the Western world have actually been an anomaly in this regard. Because of the Christian heritage of the Western civilization, which has been built on democratic freedoms and historic rule of law, Western, civili- uh, Western Christians have largely been left alone for their faith. Even today, as Western nations become increasingly post-Christian and even anti-Christian, the opposition experienced by most Christians goes little beyond mockery and scorn. However, there are signs that this protected status may be changing. If it continues to do so, it will simply put Western Christians in the same boat as their brothers and Christians, uh, brothers and sisters all over the world. Today in Islamic, Hindu and communist parts of the world, being a follower of Jesus means at best losing your job and being rejected by your family. At worst, it can mean imprisonment, beating and even death. These things are being experienced all over the, over the, all over the world right now by our brothers and sisters in Jesus. It's important to place this into context this morning. While we, while we sit here and stand here at Montmorency, we are in this Western world and we're in a safe haven compared to the audience of one Peter who are a minority and a marginalised group in the first century and also compared to our brothers and sisters across the world in this current day and age. How's everyone feeling right now? Probably not very great. But this is the truth. And Peter just wants to paint some of this picture in First Peter around what they're going through. And it's important for us to remember what we're well, where we are now and how this comes into our context this morning, whether you're listening through the podcast or the live stream uh, in an eastern, in the eastern side of the world, in the northern part of the world, the western, southern, doesn't matter, but it's where we, where we are currently. And Peter begins in verse 13 by giving hope to the believers who are suffering for this faith, for their faith. Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? The word that Peter uses here for eager is a strong word in Greek. Zealots for what is good. Of course, zealots have received a bad press over the course of human history. A reference to the Pharisees or religious people who have oppressed through their passion or through their zealousness. 
But the word itself is actually a fairly neutral one. And we're called to be zealous for the right things rather than the wrong things. Zealous for truth and for piety. Zealous for justice and here, zealous for what is good. Peter is anxious to encourage his readers as they pursue what is good and true and just. And from verse 14, But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated. As Christians holding faith, uh, holding true to our faith in Jesus, there may well be times where we feel intimidated and misunderstood. But Peter urges us to hold fast and stand for what we know is true. Despite the probability of being so uh, misunderstood, as Peter says in verse 15, we are in our hearts to sanctify Christ as Lord. And not only are we to revere Christ even before those who misunderstand us, but also, as he goes on to say, always be ready to make your defence to anyone who demands from you an account of the hope that is in you. So after I've just opened up this morning and just shared around some background and some context, what's the positive that we can take out of this this morning? And here's where Peter starts to talk to us about the positiveness of this context and this suffering in this normal world, whether it be part of the normal suffering or suffering for our faith. And this is the positive response that we can call on as Christians. That we are continue to speaking out, we can continue to speak out for our faith, despite any opposition that we might face, to declare Christ to an unbelieving and sometimes hostile world. And that's what's unique about our Christian faith, as Peter quite rightly notes here, that the hope that is ours, we're to speak boldly about the hope that we have as Christians, that God goes with us through our lives, and that He will always be there with us. We must never be shy to share the gospel with others, but Peter is absolutely sure that the guiding principle for us in sharing the gospel must always be with respect, love and compassion. So he goes on in verse 16 to say that we can give an account of the hope that we must do so with gentleness and reverence and to keep our consciousness clear. The sense here is that we must show respect to others as we speak to them about we must always remember that we are in the presence of God and are accountable to him. Peter says in verse 16 to keep our consciences clear so that when we are maligned, that those who abuse us are for for the good conduct in Christ and that they may be put to shame. And Peter concludes this section with the observation in verse 17 that it's better to suffer for doing good if suffering should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. In this passage, we are, to urge, we are urged to share the good news of Jesus, even when we be, may be misunderstood, even when we may feel intimidated, or when we're fearful of the consequences. It is hard to do that, but we know that God understands how hard it is for us, because he too has experienced misunderstanding in the person of Jesus Christ. And Peter reminds us of that in verse 18. For Christ also suffered. But Peter is very careful that we mustn't push that comparison too far. So he says that Christ suffered once for all. And he reminds us that unlike us, 
Christ suffered for sins, our sins, for my sins, for your sins, not his own. Because as Peter goes on to say, the righteous for the unrighteous. And he goes on to make a really important point in order to bring us to God. Now this is really important because so many people come to faith and somehow stop at Christ as if he is in the end in itself. And in John's Gospel, Jesus calls himself the gate. And here in Peter, the gate nature of Jesus is made explicit. We go through Jesus to God the Father. Experiencing the fatherhood of God is the end destination. Living in a relationship with Jesus is not the end destination. Our relationship with Jesus is the gate through which we travel to the Father. If we see a relationship with Jesus as being the end of our faith, then we miss the true, uh, the true riches of the Christian faith, which is being adopted as children of our Father God. Peter makes that explicit. Jesus died for us so that we, he might bring us to God. And of course, that is not a once and for all act. We are spending a whole lifetime coming to God. As we journey through our time on earth, And on the other side of the grave, we will continue journeying into the heart of God for all eternity. Never fully arriving at the destination as we continue to move into his glorious presence. And of course, it has been made possible for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. As Peter points out in verse 18, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Earlier I mentioned that 1 Peter is the New Testament version of Job and I wanted to share from Job chapter 30 verses 20 to 31. If you want to turn to that passage, feel free. Otherwise, I'll read it out for you. So I'll just give you a couple of moments and then I'll share. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death, to the place appointed for all the living. Surely no one one lays a hand on the broken man when he cries for help in his distress. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I had hoped for good... Evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My lyre is turning to mourning, and my pipe to the sound of wailing. And this was Job reaching out to God, trying to understand why he was suffering. And the book of Job is exactly like life. Both the book and life can be confusing and surprising at times. Unexpected bad things can happen. Unexpected good things can happen. Long periods of struggle and anguish and grieving can happen. 
And there are times where in this life where we wish God would tell us more about what is going on. Job wishes God would tell him why he's suffering, but God never does. We wish God would tell us more about Elihu and what happens to Satan at the end of Job, but he doesn't. It's frustrating that he doesn't, but it's just the way that life is. All of this mystery only serves to reinforce the main book of Job. It's the lesson that if we want to live life to the full, it's not a matter of knowing why things happen. It's a matter of knowing the God who knows why things happen. The book of Job is like life. It's full of confusing, surprising, sad and happy times, none of which we may ever fully understand. We may have the temptation of trying to figure it all out, to figure the meaning behind every event. And that's what Job's friends try to do. They want to nail every, everything down, every event and the reason for Job's suffering and to have all the answers. But in the end, God condemned their attitude. No, the wise way to live is not by knowing where, why everything happens because we'll never achieve that. The way through the struggles and changes of life is to know the God who knows everything. And something that we know about that Job was never able to know about is to know life through Jesus Christ. For this reason, when bad or good things happen to us, the main question to grapple with is not why is this happening to me, but the main question is to consider since this is happening to me, How can I know God better through Jesus Christ? This is what the book of Job about has been about from start to finish. It's about staying close to God and trusting him, even when bad things happen, because staying close to God is more valuable than not suffering. And Peter points his readers and listeners to the same message. He points to knowing God through Jesus Christ. Pursuing faithfulness is a central call of this passage. And we read in, chap- in verse 15 of this chapter 3 that in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. In a world that has many lords and gods, the believers are to only have one Lord and to be ready to speak to the hope that they share in common with the community of faith. And by speaking of their hope respectfully, humbly and honourably, they will remain above reproach even if slandered by neighbours, by family members, by work colleagues. And others. The hope held out is that their honourable behaviour will put to shame those who slander them. And in the rest of one Peter three, Peter offers the example of Jesus to encourage his readers, as he did in one Peter chapter two, verses eighteen to twenty five, where he says, Slaves In reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. This is what Peter was trying to reiterate and reinforce in his message. 
was that if we suffer for doing right, then we are blessed. But if we're suffering because we've done evil, he wants to make it very clear that we should suffer. We should separate those two things. And when the crowds hurled their insights at Jesus, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you, like sheep, were going astray. He means us. But now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Here Peter offers the narrative trajectory of Jesus' life to give them hope. As Jesus was vindicated after he had suffered unjustly, so these beleaguered followers of Jesus can look forward to the vindication if they commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. As followers of Christ, we are, to, we are called to suffer just as he did. As followers of Christ, we are servants following our master. If the world persecuted him, as it says in John 15 verse 20, how much more will the world persecute us? And we come to this fascinating section in, in verses 19 to 20, where it says, After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God patient, waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. You might think, what on earth is going on here? These verses seem so strange and out of place that it's hard to make heads or tails from them. These verses have been interpreted in so many different ways over the centuries, but we need to break them down a bit to understand what Peter is saying. And there's three questions to ask in these verses. One, who are the spirits in prison? Two, what did Christ proclaim to them? And the third question is in where did this take place? And there are three views in Thomas Schreier's words. The first one being that the passage refers to Christ's preaching through Noah to those who lived while Noah was building the ark. The second view is that the passage refers to Old Testament saints who died and were liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection. And the third one is that the passage describes Christ's proclamation of victory and judgment over the evil spirits. The most common selected viewpoint is the third view, and it's the one that I've selected this morning. And their view, their points for and against each one of those three views, um, and I'm happy to talk through them at a later time. But we'll look at the third view. So first then, so then who are these spirits in prison? When we read verse 22, that there are angels, authorities and powers that have been subjected to Christ, and this subjection links back to the proclamation and to the spirits. Not human spirits, but angelic spirits, who are in prison because those angelic beings, perhaps like the son of God, sons of God, as it refers to in Genesis 6, were disobedient in the days of Noah, and were thus put in prison. And now Christ, in the spirit of the resurrection, is proclaiming. But what was he proclaiming? 
given the fact that this is in something, this is in, in reading this, this is in light of the resurrection, it is likely that the proclamation is Jesus announcing his lordship over all creation, even over the unclean spirits. And we read that back in verse 22. Thirdly, where did this proclamation take place? Peter uses the phrase, he went and made a proclamation. But where did he go? Well, we shouldn't make too much out of this phrase because it seems to be a colloquialism. A bit like when we say, he went and make a fool himself, or he went and kicked the football against the wall, or he went and ate all the biscuits. Or in my son's case, he went and ate all the bananas. It doesn't refer to a geographical movement so much as a phrase to determine the activity that Jesus went to go and proclaim. So Christ has proclaimed his lordship wherever unclean spirits may be found. He has violated the sanctuary, the refuge where all unclean spirits think that they're safe, and has proclaimed his lordship amongst them. And the idea of this happening in the days of Noah is reminiscent of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 24, where he uses that as an analogy of the present age in which we live. So in light of all this, it seems that Peter, his core idea is simply this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ announces his lordship over all creation. There is nowhere for unclean spirits to take refuge. Wherever they seek to evade God, Christ will come to them and pronounce his lordship over them. This is God's creation and Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it is in that truth that we can stand and no amount of suffering or persecution or false accusation can remove us from that truth. In verse 20, there seems to be a shift in the focus where he says a few, eight persons or people were brought safely through water. Then he goes on to say baptism corresponds to this in verses 21. So what Peter is picking up on is the safe passage of a few believing people through which is a kind of type of foreshadowing of baptism. But if that is what he's meaning, what can we mainly pick up on and how should we step back from this and what can we speak confidently about what this passage is really about or what these verses are about? It seems that we can be confident about this as he has a view that a, faith, a few faithful people, eight in particular, Noah and his family, and that they were brought safely through water in spite of the judgment that was looming. That's what we can be confident about. And I think that this comes to Peter's mind because the church in that day, and when he's writing this letter, is that the church felt so embattled and so small in the Roman Empire. And we read in chapter 4, verse uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 17 and onwards that it says it's time for judgment, just like the flood, at the household of God. And that it begins with us. What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of Christ or the gospel of God? And we read back in, in chapter 3 and it says, and we're talking about those people that didn't obey in Noah's day. And we go back to chapter 4 and it says, and if the righteous, these few, are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly 
and the sinner. And this is the day of Peter that's being spoken about here. The Christians feel that they are in the day, in this very day that Peter is writing about. And when we look at verses 20 in chapter 3, where it says that the eight people were brought safely through water, I think that he, Peter, is wanting the church to take heart, for his readers and listeners to read through this passage and understand that they can take heart in the fact that God can save his people no matter how massive the judgment that is coming to them, no matter how massive the opposition seems to be from these disobedient people, from this world that is against God. Here he can save his people in the most stunning of ways and we can take heart in no matter how great the judgment or opposition is. So in these four four verses that Peter uses to encourage us, we get these four truths. That Jesus suffered once for all sin. That he did right but took the penalty of doing wrong. That Jesus willingly suffered to bring us to God. And that he gives us a fresh start. And as we read through 1 Peter chapter 3, these early Christians were facing the possibility of persecution and that they needed to know that they were safe and secure in their profession of faith and in the hands of an almighty and powerful God. And in this passage, Peter gives them the assurance that they need, the assurance that we need, that each one of us faces the possibility of being intimidated, of being misunderstood, of losing our jobs, our family, of being imprisoned or even put to death as we share with our friends, our family and the people that we encounter. But each one of us need to be prepared to stand firm in our faith and be prepared to give an account for our faith if it's demanded of us. And if we do that, we can be assured that we will be safe and secure in the loving arms of God and in the strength of our Saviour who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who has all power and authority in heaven on earth, and through them and through whom we can access God the Father. This is the good news of the gospel, and we can stand firm in it. So how do we practically apply all of this? As we've been reading through this morning, How do we practically stand firm? How do we practically be willing to share the hope that we have? Well, first of all, we need to examine our own hearts, searching for any sense of entitlement. As Paul advised Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, we need to be prepared to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We will do this not by cultivating patience or self-discipline, but by concentrating long and hard on the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, who is better, more valuable, and more delightful than anything we lose by following him. And how do we do this? How do we know and deepen our relationship with Christ? For those of you who may be listening in or watching the live stream, and you don't know Christ, it's accepting him as your Lord and Saviour. By praying with a friend, if you have them, or a family member that knows Jesus, 
or someone that you can reach out to, whether it be a church or in the current COVID lockdown situation. It may be a friend that you can call or a church that you may be able to talk to and work through by reading his word. For those of us who are believers here this morning, it means we continue to get to know him personally as a friend by spending time with him, time with him and time in his word, by having vulnerable conversations with him in both prayer and in just conversations with him throughout the day and weeks. We need to share the gospel the way Jesus did by making the cost of discipleship clear And you can read that in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, where Jesus makes it very clear about the cost of following him, but he does it with gentleness and respect. People who have been given a realistic sense of what it means to follow Jesus and who have counted the cost will make much steadier disciples. And if we fear that such a sobering presentation of the gospel will keep people from being saved, we need to realise two things. First, we're offering Jesus, which isn't a cosy life. And Jesus really is better than all of the good things of this world combined. The second thing is that there's the power of the Holy Spirit that draws people to Jesus. Not the way that we talk, not the way that we preach, It's not the way that we wrap it up in whichever 30-second or one-minute or five-minute package that we have. It's the Holy Spirit doing the work. We need to include the the subject of suffering well in our immediate follow-up with new believers, with ourselves, and with people who have known Jesus for the majority of their lives. We should not be surprised or caught of God by suffering. We need to endure suffering without compromising our integrity. We must love our persecutors and pray for our welfare, uh, and pray for their welfare. We are to renounce any intention of taking revenge. We are to trust God in the middle of our suffering and respond by proactively doing good. We are to use our experiences of suffering as a basis for comforting others who also suffer and who haven't suffered yet. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus and we're commanded to rejoice. In 1 Peter 4 it says, Rejoice so far and so much as you share Christ's sufferings. As followers of Jesus, we do not rejoice in suffering because we enjoy pain, but because Jesus is so worthy in our eyes and hearts that we delight in being identified with him. All suffering is temporary. It isn't worth comparing with the glory that awaits us. In that place of glory, all pain and suffering will be gone forever. And I want to end the message this morning by sharing a passage from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 14 from the Apostle Paul, who also suffered greatly. But he shared this as a source of encouragement. And I wanted to share it this morning in being able to have an answer for the hope that we have. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord.
for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or I have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So I want to encourage everyone this morning that if you are suffering this morning, if you have been suffering for, for your faith, for doing what is right and listening to Jesus, from reading his word, take heart. And if someone asks you of your faith, be willing to share in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because knowing him is more powerful, more glorious, than anything that we can have in this world. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you've shared that you've shared this message with us this morning. Thank you, Lord, that through one Peter through Peter writing this message to a church in the first century that was undergoing persecution and suffering For what was right, for what was for their faith in you. That we can take heart in that, Lord Jesus, that even though we may not be suffering in the same way, we pray that for our brothers and sisters across this world who are suffering in the same way, we also pray for us that are sitting here this morning, Lord, in this Western civilization, and Potentially we're only starting to join the rest of our brothers and sisters in this persecution, Lord. We pray that we understand the message that you've been wanting to share with us, Lord Jesus. That we can take heart in you, in Christ Jesus. That by knowing him, Lord Jesus, that we don't need to actually understand why everything happens, that every event, every detail, the reason why. All we need to know, Lord Jesus, is that you are our Lord and Saviour, that we proudly proclaim, that we want to be identified with you, Lord Jesus, that we will proclaim this message, that we'll give an account of why we have such a faith in you, because of what you've done for us, Lord Jesus. That by dying for death, uh, by dying for our sins, for suffering for our sins, that you've given us an opportunity to come and know you. That you gave us an example of what we should be doing for others, Lord Jesus. 
We pray that we you that even though we may find it difficult, Lord Jesus, that we may not have the answers. It might be completely out of our comfort zone. We pray that we want to share that because of the joy and the faith that we have this in you, Lord Jesus, and that your Holy Spirit will help us to share that message when asked, that we won't shy away, that we can share the truth in the way that Jesus did, Lord, which was respectfully, humbly and full of grace, and that we can be full of your Holy Spirit as we do so, Lord. We pray that you give us the opportunities to share this coming week with a family member, with a friend, with a work colleague and people that we encounter that you want us to share, Lord Jesus. So please give us those opportunities. And we thank you, Lord, for that we can always have an answer in the hope that we have because of you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you that we can know you, Father God. We pray this in your name. Amen. And just something I wanted to share with you that uh, Raf shared with me this morning as I was coming to church and preparing. And this comes from Psalm chapter 25, verses 4 to 5. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Saviour and my hope is in you all day long. So as you go out this week, if you're asked about your faith or you'll get challenged for your faith, have hope in that Jesus Christ is with you and be and stand fast in the fact that you can share about your faith because of Jesus Christ. Thank you and have a blessed week, everyone.